Hey everyone, before we start this week I just want to drop a quick spoiler warning. Around the 49 minute mark in this episode we start talking about the movie Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri and we talk about a couple of key plot points in detail. So if you haven't seen the movie and don't want it spoiled then when you start hearing us talk about the movie then skip forward to about an hour and one minute and you should be fine. Okay, enjoy the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me as a way through the miracle of satellite technology is Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how are you doing? Hey man, I'm considerably better than I was last week. We had to cancel mm-hmm. because I was um, dying of a cough, which has been great considering that I have been spluttering my way through a series of job interviews this week of which I was on the other side of the desk. I was interviewing people and mm. my boss was also ill. So generally the conversations were like, so why do you want to join a team that appears to be dying of tuberculosis? <laughs> um, it's not a good look is what I'm trying to say yeah. if you're in the employment market. Yeah, I've only had to conduct uh, interviews from that side two or three times back when I worked at the showroom and I had to interview for other people to work on the box office with me Mm -hmm. and it was incredibly weird because uh, of the people we interviewed like three were people who I already worked with and one was a new person and it was just really strange being like oh hi person I'm really good friends with (laughs) how are you let's engage in a formal discussion about your qualifications for this job that I know you can do because I've also worked with you in the past. Mm. Uh, and it was, it was an incredibly surreal moment, especially because I also had to like come in wearing like uh, a suit. And at the time I had, uh, it was one of the many times when I'd lost like a bit of weight and I hadn't had reason to buy a new suit. So I wore a jacket, which was hanging off me like David Burns jacket in stop making sense. And I felt incredibly, <laughs> awkward for the entire time but uh but all the right people got the jobs from those interviews which was which was nice uh, by which i mean the people i knew yeah uh, got the got the jobs from those interviews but mm. it was still like this really weird thing to happen in the middle of a week um mm. especially when you would like then have to go back to the box office and sit next to the person who was <laughs> who had applied for like a supervisor job and you're like yeah that seemed to go well <laughs> let's sell tickets <laughs> some yeah. it's more good, it's good to see that nepotism is rife at every level of the film industry whether it's the mm. top or whether it's the people flogging the tickets um i was just thinking like how unnerving it would be to go for a job interview and the person interview interviewing you was dressed as david burn from stop making sense mm. especially if it was like the david burn that interviewed david burn on that weird extra on the dvd where he interviewed himself as like a weird Lynchian character. Mm. It's among the strangest bits of promotional material I've ever seen. I don't know why he thought it would be a good way to advertise the movie. Well, you don't really know um, what he's thinking at any time. So, mm. do you know what I mean? It's best not to second guess him. Oh, he's, yeah. got a tour. he's doing a tour next uh, next year, isn't he? Or this year? Is he? Well, yeah. obviously he's... He's still very active. He did that album with St. Vincent a few years ago. So, And apparently he's, it's going to be his, his most ambitious live show since Stop Making Sense. 
Wow, that'd be pretty cool because he's always doing lots of weird conceptual stuff, as seen in that uh, Paolo Sorrentino movie uh, with Sean Penn, the name mm. of which escapes. This, this must be, be the, the place. place, is what it's yes. called. Yeah. Yes, which does have like a bit of his stage show in it, which seemed very kind of weird and ambitious, and lots of kind of items hanging down in the air and being moved around the band mm. in a way which seems like it would murder someone if something went even slightly wrong. Yeah, yeah. But enough about David Byrne. Let's talk about... Mm. Let, let's kind of go back to the more innocent time of 2016 and talk about celebrity deaths. Because, like, that was not really a thing last year, 2017. Celebrities died, but, like... Yeah. There weren't any but kind not of, all at once. Yes, not all at once. And not necessarily the kind of celebrities where it was kind of sudden and shocking. But in the two weeks... Yes. Since we've been off, there have been uh, a bunch, the first of which, of course, was Dolores O'Riordan, the lead singer from The Cranberries, who died at the age of 46. Uh, mm-hmm. Then this past week, we lost Ursula K. Le Guin, the uh, brilliant sci-fi author behind things like uh, the Earthsea Quartet, Left Hand of Darkness. And then uh, only a couple of days ago, uh, Marky e. Smith, the lead singer, sole permanent piece of the ship of Theseus that is The Fall, uh, mm-hmm. died at the age of 60. All of which, uh, for me, were were very, very upsetting. Dolores O'Riordan particularly, because even though I wasn't the hugest fan of the Cranberries, like, I loved Zombie, and, like, as a kid, you couldn't escape Linger. (laughs) That was uh, just a song that was such a... formed such kind of a part of the mosaic of my childhood that hearing that she had passed away and at such a young age was was really uh, heartrending. Yeah, she was one of those voices of the 90s that you would always... If you thought about it, the songs and the sound were so ubiquitous and her voice was so unique mm. um, that it would always kind of uh, bring you straight back to, uh, to to kind of your formative years as soon as you heard it. Mm. Which is, I mean, I, again, like yourself, I wasn't a huge fan of the Cranberries. I don't know any of their albums or anything. But uh, for for a band so innocuous, they had so much success mm. and so many hits. And, you know, they got up there and they did what they did. And, you know, it's no age at all. Yeah. And also, yeah, that, for me, it kind of made me realise, oh, yeah, like, the point at which no age at all changes as you get older is really fascinating. Because mm. when I was, like, 10, if you told me someone had died at the age of 46, it's like, well, they had a good long life. <laughs> yeah. And at, thir- run. Yeah. And at 31, it's like, oh, God, you know, that's, mm. that's like, I have friends who are at that age. <laughs> like, if they died suddenly, it'd be, like, absolutely devastating. So that was, that was deeply sad. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin was, was, was older. She was in her 80s, but she still was, was uh, an author who had written some incredible works of science fiction over the course of her career and who still felt underappreciated, even though she, you know, was widely cited by, like, every great science fiction author of the last 20 or 30 years as a huge influence. And, yeah, Marky Smith was an icon of iconoclastic uh, British pop culture for 40-something years. Certainly responsible for one of the most terrifying gigs I've ever been to, which I think is probably true of anyone who ever saw The Fall, even, like, uh, in fairly mild uh, situations. Mm, what happened at that gig, Ed? He was just... He, he just sang and performed and was very unnerving. Like, he didn't do anything... Like, he wasn't uh, firing the band or anything, although I do believe he fired that line-up mere weeks later. Um, mm. This was in about 2004, around about the release of Fall Heads Roll. But... 
yeah, there, there was just like his presence on stage was so disconcerting because you could tell he did not give a shit about anyone else there. <laughs> like he didn't care if you were having a good time. He would happily just wander off stage and start singing from there or turn off the amps of the people who were playing. Uh, and that was that was exciting and exhilarating, but also it was a strange challenge to the entire basis of the audience performer relationship. Yeah, that's is it's he's like someone that when he he passed away, it was kind of this year, I was like I don't actually know anything about the fall. I know who he is and mm-hmm. I've made the joke several times that at one point I was the bass player in the fall because it's <laughs> yeah. funny and everyone can make that joke. And it's but the closest thing any of us of our generation have to national service. Yeah, exactly. I have never been someone who kind of listened to the fall at all but like as someone who works in a workplace that plays six music like continuously the day after he passed away they played fall songs all day and all night and i knew pretty much all of them <laughs> and i was like these are bangers yeah um so there it's that whole classic thing about you know death being the greatest career move you can pull but like in terms of the fall i you know, got a bunch of their albums on Apple Music and just kind of got them. I was like, oh, wow, I really should have been listening to these guys all along. And the same with uh, Le Guin. Like, mm. I've n- never read any of her books. And as soon as um, as soon as I heard, I was like, I kind of know the name and, like, some people I know like her. Then they kind of listed all this. And I was like, dude, I'd seriously be into that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, why haven't I done this? Um, so, yeah, I am coming to the party slightly late. Maybe too late, some people <laughs> might say. Um, but I'm there nonetheless, uh, cradling a bottle of cheap red. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the Earthsea Quartet in particular, which is like Le Guin's big kind of work, certainly her most famous, her most adapted, and that is something that people have, have taken a crack at, including Studio Ghibli, who made a not particularly good adaptation of a couple of the books several years ago. Mm-hmm. Um it's just it's such a great work of science, of fantasy writing, but it's also really fascinating watching someone consciously try to take fantasy, which during the twentieth century was so like eurocentric and particularly about like white male characters going on great adventures mm-hmm. and saying, Okay, there's not gonna be any white people in this story. It's going to be entirely about people of various different ethnicities, but it's also going to be about internal journeys, and it's going to be more about the exploration of characters that just happen to exist in this kind of fantastical world. And mm-hmm. it's really, for me, it was like really eye-opening reading those books and being like, oh, like fantasy can be political, and it can be about uh, exploring and commenting on the tropes of the genre, whilst also being like hugely enjoyable. Mm. And you yeah. can see why people like China Mirable and like, you know, the real kind of esoteric fantasy authors of the last kind of 20 years or so really like looked up to her as someone who said, OK, there's a lot more you could be doing with this genre than than what people are doing at the moment. Mm. Yeah. One of the stories that uh, you uh, particularly want to talk about and which I was thinking about this week uh, was the box office performance of two movies that came out over Christmas Seemed like they were going to do okay, but have kind of blown away anyone's wildest expectations, which are Jumanji, uh, mm-hmm. Welcome to the Jungle, which uh, and uh, The Greatest Showman, which, both of which opened like okay. Jumanji opened to $36 million and Great, Great Showman opened terribly. In fact, it opened to $8.8 8 million. 
mm-hmm. which uh, for a $80 million musical is very, very bad. And even though there was that sense of like, oh, they're opening over Christmas, so there'll be lots of opportunity for people to see the movie. They don't need to open big. There was still that sense of like, okay, this is not great. But since then, they both exploded. Uh, Jumanji currently has $338 million in the US, and wow. The Great Showman has uh, 126.4, which means that Jumanji has now earned over nine times its opening weekend, which, for people who don't know how these things usually work, three is good. Three mm. times your opening weekend is a good performance. Uh, and Great Showman has earned 14.3 times his opening weekend, which it makes it the second leggiest movie of all time behind Titanic. And all based on kind of word of mouth, people mm. being, uh, especially in the um, Greatest Showman um, respect, having franchise fatigue. Um, there's a, a stat that I saw today, which is pretty revealing, and it compares the performance, the 40-day performance of The Greatest Showman and Transformers The Last Night. Mm-hmm. So over 40 days, um, The Greatest Showman, which never made more than the opening day on any single day, it's only ever made an average of $5 million a day, mm-hmm. is at $126 million and is still going. Whereas yeah. over the same period of time, Transformers The Last Night had already topped out at 130 million and made 120 million of that, like in the first two weeks. Yeah. So, um, in terms of, of like staying power, they've got it. And I've noticed this like today. I went to the cinema today and the two screenings of Jumanji, either side of the film that I went to see, were sold out. And wow. this, this film came out four and a half weeks ago. Hmm. Yeah. And, at its current pace in the US, it's going to probably get close to or overtake 400 million, which I think if you t- told me that like a week before the film came out, I would have I would have spat in your face. I don't, yeah. know, I don't know what the appropriate response to just disbelief is, but it would have been beyond my comprehension to think that it could have done that well. And I'm not saying that's like knock the film, I haven't seen it, but I understand it's good and it's a good fun movie but it, it didn't seem like when when everyone said there was going to be a long delayed sequel to jumanji coming out mm-hmm. it didn't enter my mind that it would be kind of a a pop culture force <laughs> in the way that it has been yeah and the interesting thing is is that um i mean obviously the movie is perfectly fine it mm-hmm. is an enjoyable 90 minute movie that i don't remember much about but mm-hmm. whilst i was in the cinema i had a very nice time yeah but it was also the sequel to a one-film modest hit, I guess. It wasn't mm-hmm. like a runaway success, like top ten box office of all time. People went to see it. People have a certain amount of affection for it, but not in the same way they do, like, the nostalgia value of, like, Star Wars or whatever. Yes. Um, so somehow it's just caught on fire. And I think people who have who have who've seen it, and then tell their friends, yeah, it's really not as bad as you think it is. Mm. And for some reason, that's making people go to the cinema and spread that, the, the kind of the idea that, hey, this is actually a decent movie, and it's yeah. kind of like an antidote to whatever else is on. And yeah, they, they both just seem to keep on going. In, in London this week, we had a uh, like a sing-along screening of The Greatest mm. Showman, which is normally reserved for a film whilst it's been put out to pasture and it's kind of gained some kind of cult following. That shit yeah. was sold out all weekend. 
Yeah, they've been very big over here as well. That's a thing that is cropping up in theatres across the land, uh, people going to watch The Greatest Showman to sing along to it, which uh, is a little surprising to me because a lot of those songs aren't that memorable, but mm-hmm. uh, that it, the fact that it has managed somehow to achieve that level like five weeks into its run whilst you know it's still packing out regular screenings... Uh, is nuts. The only thing that I can really compare it to is Mamma Mia, which I think had a similar life. But even then, like the sing-along screening aspect of it is more something that cropped up after it was out of regular theatres and it kind of picked up in its second life on DVD. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I'm just kind of um, fascinated that those two movies are the ones that are still going. We talked mm. about, you know, the the legs on The Force Awakens. I mean, The Last Jedi did great at the box office. It's, you know, people kind of um, seem to think it's underperformed because it didn't do as well as Force Awakens and that the um, overall uh, view of it was perhaps not as shining as, uh, as Force Awakens, but it's still done pretty good numbers. Mm. But it has fallen away way quicker and it's been kind of supplanted by Jumanji. The people who are going for the the family, kind of like family adventure, are seeing Jumanji. Yeah, I wonder how much of it... It, it, it reminds me a little bit of in 2005 when, you know, the Peter Jackson King Kong came out and everyone mm-hmm. was like, oh, this is going to be like the big, the big movie of the holiday period because Peter Jackson had owned the holiday period for... for three years with the Lord of the Rings movies and then it ended up being overtaken by Chronicles of Narnia because that mm-hmm. came out and that was a huge hit and I do wonder how much of it is down to just like novelty because as as good as you know I, I love The Last Jedi and I think it's it's fantastic and I really liked Rogue One as well I do wonder if Disney's plan of putting out a Star Wars film a year has made the notion of a new Star Wars movie a little less special Mm-hmm. And I don't think if Rogue One hadn't happened that, like, The Last Jedi would have made a billion dollars in the US. That would have been unrealistic and, and because it's hard to recapture the excitement that greeted The Force Awakens. But I do feel as if, like, the fact that we had a Star Wars movie and then another Star Wars movie and then another Star Wars movie means that it's hard to kind of feel, and knowing we've got another one coming up out in four months that no one's seen the trailer for... Um, yeah. I think that does kind of make it seem less of a kind of everyone has to rush out and see it and make it the only movie they see event because Mm. as totemic as Star Wars is within our culture still, uh, it's like not as special as when, okay, there's a new Star Wars movie. You have to wait three years for the next one and then there's going to be nothing else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a side point to this, which is, um, you kind of touched on it a little bit. At what point do we really start to worry about the Han Solo movie? <laughs> because whilst you and I have talked about this several times before, like, you know, how the I, the marketing of films is, is out of hand, right? Mm. Like, you get a teaser for a teaser that is a teaser for a trailer, and there's mm. two trailers, and then there's the international trailer, then there's TV spots, and by the time the film comes out, you've seen like a quarter of the film, and definitely you could probably piece together the entire narrative, and there's no mystery anymore. Yeah. But <laughs> we're talking about Disney, 
right, who yeah. generally tend to get something out around a year to nine months beforehand. And we are less than four months away from Han Solo, or Solo, a Star Wars story, mm. and we haven't even seen a still. No, we've only seen a picture of the cast posing for a picture in the cockpit. <laughs> yeah, and most of which aren't involved with the movie anymore but like yeah. it's what's what i find interesting is i'm trying to rationalize what the reason for that would be mm. and i've got it down to one of two things one they reshot so much of it that anything they did have cut together for a trailer is now not a fair reflection of what's going to be in the movie mm. or two it's fucking awful <laughs> and they're like guys like like is there anything better we can put out because this is terrible because because like it's they normally even like tease the the fact that the ta- trailer is going to come out a week ahead and mm. like like we're, we're just not seeing anything and perfectly happy for me to go and see the movie like sight unseen but like this is kind of unprecedented yeah i mean they, they're pretty much cloverfielding it at this point <laughs> Which is, <laughs> Maybe that's it, the new Cloverfield movie that's coming out that we don't know anything about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is like, it's so strange. And you're right, it is, it is unprecedented for a movie of that scale and that kind of brand awareness. It's not like like with the, the first Cloverfield when no one really knew anything until it started screening or 10 Cloverfield Lane when no one knew it was a Cloverfield movie until like two weeks before it came out. Mm-hmm. Like, this is like, oh, this is a movie that has been scheduled for this release date for several years but because of its production or whatever, we have not seen a damn thing about it. And it, you do wonder if at this point that is just what Disney's strategy will have to be. Is like, it's too late for us to push it back because that would look terrible. Mm-hmm. It's also kind of weirdly late for us to start advertising it. So let's kind of emphasize the mystery of it. Maybe it's mm-hmm. too good for them to put out a trailer. <laughs> like the best trailer for the movie would be the movie itself. Yeah, they might do like the thing they did with the Blair Witch sequel. Like, <laughs> you go and watch like another film, you buy a ticket for like, you know, another film, and then you come out having seen Han Solo and they change all the posters. <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing. Like, uh, you go in to see Jason Reitman's Tully mm. and you think, I'm going to watch a movie about Charlie Theron as a single mum. It's like, no, I watched Solo, a Star Wars movie. Yeah, yeah. It's a, <laughs> it's a very, very strange kind of sequence of events, given that they had the perfect opportunity to push it back, given that they pushed back The Force Awakens, they pushed back Episode Nine, and there's no real need for them to release a movie in May when they've got December open. Mm, yeah, when it could so easily... Uh, when it would also have to deal with the fact that you've also got, like, Infinity War and, you know, maybe even Black Panther's still kicking around at that point. At a certain point, they're just going to be cannibalising their own stuff. So what's the harm in moving Solo back to December, considering now there's a pretty well-established precedent that Star Wars movies do well in December? Yeah, they do okay. Yeah. So it's very, it's very, very weird. And I do, I, maybe it is the case that they are trying to think of the right time to announce that they're kicking it back six months. Uh, and they're just kind of like holding off on when to make the announcement, because whenever they make the announcements, it will uh, look bad. Mm. It's like if I forget someone's birthday, like, if you go past a day, mm-hmm. like, you may as well just forget it full stop. Because, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, 
you forgot their birthday. If you don't, if you've got like 24 hours of action, the first, the first 48 hours, let's say, like a missing, per, missing person's case, mm-hmm. you've got to get, you've got to get the old oh, sorry it was late in there. You can't just be rolling that shit out two weeks later. So you yeah. need to, you need enough time to pass that they've forgotten that you forgot. Yeah. And then you can just be like, hey, nice one. And it, maybe it's like that, that like we'll get to like May and they'll be like, what movie? What? <laughs> <laughs> we never said that. No, we know Ron Howard directing a Star Wars movie. You mental mate. Yeah, no Quite way, nuts. no way that happened. Mm. Uh, speaking of musicals, as we were with uh, the Greatest Showman, we found out this week that Steven Spielberg is likely directing as his next movie or his next next movie because he's always got something percolating. Mm-hmm. Is he's going to be directing a new version of West Side Story? And I personally am very excited about this, both because uh, I love the musical. But mm-hmm. also because there's such a vitality to a lot of Spielberg's work, and there are some of his movies where, like, if you told me, say, Catch Me If You Can was a musical, but like, uh, I'll do anything. They cut all the songs immediately before release. Mm-hmm. I believe it because they're so kind of like heightened and alive and and uh, thrumming with energy mm-hmm. that there's something about his grasp of composition and blocking. You know, he is, you know, unparalleled as a kind of a visual storyteller in American movies, even, you know, well in, well, not well into his 70s. You know, he just turned 70, but mm-hmm. like five decades into his career. Uh, and a musical is like the one of the only genres he hasn't tackled at this point. And uh, him tackling that with Tony Kushner writing the book uh, or the screenplay is, uh, you know, it's a great collection of, of talent. Mm, yeah, it's like you get to a certain point, you can do what the fuck you want. Yeah, you know what I mean. And Spielberg passed that ages ago. If he wants to do West Side Story, I mean, the only issue is you're tackling like the definitive version of that. Do you know what mm. I mean? That that is. We talked about this in the Lord of the Rings. Like, you know, the the problem with remaking it is that everyone sees Aragorn as Viggo Mortensen. You know what I mean? Yeah, like. Everyone's going to know those voices singing those songs, those arrangements. Is it Elmer Bernstein? Um, yep. yep. And Sondheim, yep. And Sondheim, yeah. So everyone knows that. That's his problem. He knows what he's doing. Um, uh, he'll be fine. Uh, I have never seen West Side Story. Wow. It's good. I know the songs. Mm-hmm. And I've, I, you know, I mean, I've seen Romeo and Juliet, the Baz Luhrmann play. Mm-hmm. Um, so Romeo I plus Juliet, Romeo plus Juliet, yep. Yeah. Um, so I know the story, but yeah, it's uh, something I've never actually seen. So uh, to me, I'm just you know, I'm just thrilled that he's still working. <laughs> yeah, he's, I mean, he's had a tough career. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes like he barely manages to scrape together a cast for a movie that comes together in like six months and gets nominated for Best Picture. But we'll get yeah. onto that in a bit. Um, but yeah, no, I, I really. I really love the, the the movie West Side Story. I think it's a really good good work by Robert Wise. But also, like the whole thing with like musical theatre is people are constantly updating the classics and restaging them and trying to think of new ways to do them. And even mm-hmm. though you could argue that you know the the version from 1960 is definitive, I still think like there are ways to update it for for modern audiences. But you know, like um, Lin Manuel Miranda did Spanish language lyrics for the stage version that came out in 2009 or played on on Broadway. So 
that is a that's a way you can do it differently is if you have kind of spanish language lyrics but but you know you can have uh, a cast of people who are actually uh latinos um, as opposed to a handful of latinos and white people made up to look like latinos as a lot of the cast is in the original um you know there there are ways in which you could improve it for for 2070 or 2019 audiences or whenever the movie ends up coming out um, mm. and I, and i would rather see spielberg try his hand at something that he's never done before or something that he's kind of like tentatively done before like the opening of temple of doom or whatever mm-hmm. than uh you know indiana jones 5 which is always kind of he's always threatening to make mm. Yeah, I, I think um, the updating it for kind of today's audience is going to be very interesting in a kind of a culture where suddenly a lot of young people are interested in musical theatre mm. for uh, you know, the Hamilton effect of um, suddenly realising that, that kind of musicals are for everybody and are accessible. And I kind of wonder if they're going to update it to give it a more modern flavor um whether it will be but then you've also got the in the heights movie coming out um mm. which might come out around the same time yeah. maybe it's the same thing that would be actually very exciting although yeah i guess the problem there is within the heights there would be the desire to try and do it with like the original broadway cast uh-huh. which is Sometimes a good idea, but when you're dealing with like a story about people in their early twenties and all those casts are now pushing forty, mm. you end up with a rent situation where it doesn't really satisfy anyone. Uh not the people who wanted to see this cast uh on Broadway, which who didn't get a chance and not satisfying like the diehard fans of the musical who are like, Yeah, all these people are way too old to play the characters now. Um mm. Whereas the the good thing with West Side Story is uh, like pretty much all that original cast dead at this point. <laughs> it's just uh, you can hire like new young unknowns who could like put their own spin on the material, and you wouldn't have that kind of pressure to try and recreate what the stage show was like. Mm, uh, I think it is. Yeah, now. but yeah, anyway, because no one remembers the stage show. No. Yeah. Um, so obviously, the big news this week. <laughs> was uh, the Oscar nominations came out. Uh, the Shape of Water is kind of the front runner with 13 uh, nominations. And uh, I have to say, I didn't think that was going to be the movie that became kind of like the safe consensus pick for all of those awards. Mm. Um, I mean, it's, it's a great movie and I really, really love it, but it's a, it's a, it's a fish-fucking movie. You know, <laughs> it's like, that's not what you think of as a Best Picture nominee, uh, but, and which would get like actress and director and everything like that it's so weird that that's become one of the uh the kind of the consensus pick and like not like sometimes you see it just leading the field of, of a few films that get a lot of nominations like seven eight nine nominations You've got like 13 nominations mm-hmm. yeah I mean, that's a lot uh, i mean return and- of the king got like 14 and 113 is that right or did it win yes, that's right, it, yeah. yeah. It's like it won everything it was nominated for. You can't be nominated for many more awards. Yeah, unless you include like one scene of it, which is a documentary. So you can kind of say, yeah, we qualify for documentary short. Say yeah. that we don't. But yeah, so that that's kind of incredible. It's a field of nine uh, because they just won't c- uh, commit to a full 10. It's always like, where's the rule? It's like up to 10 and it based on, you know, the percentages that certain films get. 
Mm -hmm. uh, which seems kind of annoying when you look at it. You think, you know, you could put the Florida Project in there and no one would mind too much. And it would get a bit of attention for Mm -hmm. a very small movie. But but the nine, and I'm going to try and remember them off the top of my head. So you've got Shape of Water. Get Out. Mm -hmm. The Post. Yep. Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Mm. Lady Bird. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, Lady Bird. That's five. This is where it gets difficult. (laughs) Fuck. Uh, I rattled them all off earlier. Solo, a Star Wars Solo, a Star Wars story. <laughs> Transformers, The Last Night. Yeah, greatest show. Uh, oh. It will still be showing next year, so it might qualify then. Yeah, uh, Call Me By Your Name. Yeah. I remember that one. Oh, uh, Phantom Thread. Mm-hmm. Uh, nope. <laughs> Fuck. You got to seven, you got so close. I did get so close. I'll see if I... In the time it takes for IMDb to load up, I'll see if I can remember the other two. I would have Googled it myself, but I've actually got my fingers counting the the movies that aren't out here yet. Oh, so Darkest Hour like, and Dunkirk. Darkest Hour and Dunkirk. It's amazing that those are the two that I forgot, considering they tell different parts of the same story. Yeah, and you saw one of them today, Ed. I, I watched one of them mere hours before we started recording. Yeah. Uh, which but, is an indication... I think that's an indicator of um, Darkest Hour's qualities. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that's a pretty... Good selection. Uh, you and I both have extreme problems with three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, that's a more interesting selection than I was expecting. I certainly wasn't expecting Phantom Thread to make it into like best picture and best director, mainly yeah. because it's a, a weird, abrasive little movie. Mm. It's, it's just the counting on my fingers there was that four of the, as soon as the announcement came out of the nominees, um, I was very excited, but then also mm-hmm. kind of hindered by the fact that five of the nine hadn't been released in England yet, which is very frustrating. And we're kind of slowly paying catch up. Um, so I can't comment on most of them, but mm. I'm thrilled to see uh, Get Out in there. Yeah. Um, and also it's various, because we said, didn't we, that like it'll be a good shout at getting you know, a screenplay nod. Mm-hmm. Which is usually how some breakout hits get, like, uh, you know, they get their little bit of, yeah, okay, you've done all right, you know, come and sit at the big boys' table for a bit. You won't win, but you'll get, you get nominated in one of these kind of slightly minor awards. But, you know, best director, best picture, best actor, mm. best screenplay. Yeah, I like, I'm absolutely thrilled for, for, for that film and, you know, thrilled for like, Jordan Peele, who joins such illustrious company as James L. Brooks and Warren Beatty as being the only three people to be nominated for Best Director, Best Film, and Best Screenplay for their first movie. Yeah, it's absolutely insane how well the year has gone for for Get Out, and it's totally deserved. It's an amazing movie. But, you know, the fact that it is... Because it's also getting a a re-release to to capitalise on this. Mm -hmm. And... You know, the idea that it opened last February, I think on the weekend that the Oscars were announced. Wow. And it's still in the conversation to the extent... It was still in the conversation to the extent that it started like getting nominated for all the end-of-year awards and eventually, you know, got four of the five main Oscar nominations mm-hmm. is, is, uh, is absolutely incredible. And, you know, also it's great to see... Uh, Lady Bird getting recognised, Greta Gerwig becoming the fifth woman ever to be nominated for Best Director. 
Mm. Uh, in 90 all... years. Yep. So they're, they're slowly catching up. Uh, it's just going to take them another, like, 450 years to get to the point where men have been for the, most of the duration. Mm-hmm. Um, and also Jordan Peele is, I think, is only the fifth black director to ever be nominated for an Oscar, the fourth African-American as well, yeah. uh, because obviously you had uh, Steve McQueen, uh, who is not American, despite being often linked in with, <laughs> with the other people who are nominated. Uh, some other kind of fun superlatives that I noticed. Uh, Yancey Ford, who is nominated for the documentary Strong Island, is the first openly transgender man to be nominated for an Oscar, for a competitive Oscar. Wow. Uh, Agnes Varda, at the age of 89, becomes the oldest person to ever be nominated for a competitive uh, award. She uh, could be. She could pull off the rare feat of winning a Lifetime Achievement and a conveyor of Oscar in the same year. Mm, yeah, which I think like, Peter O'Toole came very close to doing. Yeah, the only person I, I know of off the top of my head who actually did do it was Harold Russell, who was nominated for like a special award because he's from uh, he's the guy from uh, The Best Years of Our Lives, who was a real-life veteran who had lost both of his hands during the war. Mm-hmm. And he was given a kind of a special award for his kind of like bravery and service and for his efforts kind of drawing attention to the plight of, of injured servicemen. And then he also won Best Supporting Actor for that movie. Oh, okay. Wow. Uh, yeah. He's the only one I know of who's also done it, but it would be amazing if uh, Agnes Varda also managed it. Uh, and James Ivory became the oldest man to be ever nominated for a competitive Oscar. He's also 89, but he's a few weeks younger than Agnes Varda. He got his fourth uh, Oscar nomination a mere 24 years after his third. Wowza. Yeah. Uh, and um, Meryl Streep got a nomination, which is, uh, you know, a unique... if she didn't get a nomination, that would be, you know, more surprising than any nominations we've received. Yeah. Um, Denzel but, as well kind of falls into that category. Yep. Um, we had uh, Saoirse Ronan got her third nomination and she is 23 years old. Yeah, so everyone out there who is 24 and over needs to feel very bad about where they are in their lives. She's yeah. doing pretty well. Yeah, um, um, Dee Reese uh, got a writing nomination. We had um, the first female director of photography nominated in 90 years, everyone. We had uh, Kobe Bryant nominated for an Oscar uh, for mm. his best animated short, is it? Yes, yeah, uh, which uh, is certainly weird. Mm. <laughs> certainly, like... Not a name I expected to hear being read out uh, as a nominee. Yeah, because um, you messaged me and I assumed it was a typo. Mm-hmm. And then I then looked it up and I was like, oh shit, yeah, he, this is actually a thing. Yeah, uh, Sufjan Stevens nominated for, for one of the songs he wrote for Call Me By Your Name, which is uh, lovely. I always like it when uh, musicians who I was a big fan of 10 years ago s- suddenly kind of cross over into my other great love of movies. It shouldn't distract from the fact that he owes us, like, 48 albums about states. Yeah, and writing about Italy doesn't count. Yeah. It's not a state. <laughs> yeah, absolutely uh, not. Even though there are some Americans in the movie, you know, he's trying. he tries to get around it. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff to like about that. I think uh, you and I were talking about this uh, beforehand when I'd completely forgotten that I'd seen... Before I'd forgotten that, <laughs> that I'd seen Darkest Hour... <laughs> I the its nomination for best picture is is baffling to me over other movies that could have been nominated, um, and Gary Oldman's performance as Winston Churchill, if he wins, is like it might as well just be a lifetime achievement Oscar in everything in name because that is not a particularly standout performance. He does some good physical work in the fat suit, I guess, in that you know he really does 
make you think that he is a fat man mm-hmm. when he isn't. But like otherwise, it's not that impressive. Like the best moments in the movie are just when he kind of storms towards camera and he looks like he's going to like go and beat Hitler up himself. You know, he's just kind of like storming towards it, like he's going to, like he's in the firm or something, and he's about to, <laughs> everything's about to kick off. But yeah, there's there's just not a huge amount to that movie that makes you think this deserves to be Oscar nominated, other than the fact that it is like a platonic ideal of what you know we would derisively refer to as Oscar bait. But in a year that has interesting movies nominated, uh, particularly Dunkirk, which you know is a, a World War Two story that couldn't be told in a more different and more daring way. Mm. Uh, it, yeah, just that one to me strikes me as, as a huge disappointment that I got in. Yeah. Was there any notable snubs that you could think of? I think uh, James, James Franco would have expected a nomination. I would have thought over mm-hmm. perhaps over Denzel, who seemed to get the, the nomination for the movie that everyone was excited about then turned out to be not very good. Yes, which uh, hardly anyone saw. Yeah. Uh, which is a rarity because Denzel is, is one of the kind of most consistent draws in American movies today, but you know, no one wanted to see Roman J. Israel Esquire, possibly because it was called Roman J. Israel Esquire. It's not, mm, not a good not title. The most, yeah. Um, I think the biggest snub may have been a case of, of ballots being divided up because people expected either... Michael Stuhlbarg or Army Hammer to be nominated in Best Supporting Actor for Call Me By Your Name. And it mm-hmm. may be just a case that they divided the, the vote between them. Right. Um, so that certainly feels like that could have been the case. Uh, I think D. Reese, other than getting a nomination for screenplay, which is great for adapted screenplay, um, I think there was a, there's a general sense that Mudbound didn't get as much attention as it deserved and she didn't get attention for the great work she did directing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a question of whether or not that's just the anti-Netflix bias within the uh, within the Academy and, you know, awards bodies in general, uh, where if you don't do what Amazon does and kind of do a, like, token theatrical release that you don't deserve to get, you know, th- to be in the conversation. Yeah, um, but Netflix did all right out of this... this- uh, Academy Awards because mm-hmm. uh, didn't um, Icarus Strong the, Island get... yes and Icarus they they do well in documentaries yeah but but I think uh, this is the first time that any of their non-documentary features have kind of entered into the main categories so it was it is a kind of a watershed for them but considering the excitement that existed around Mudbound when it played at Sundance and everything it, it's a shame to see that the general consensus. Uh, when Netflix bought it, that it was a great movie that everyone would completely ignore mm-hmm. because it was on Netflix, uh, kind of ended up coming true to uh, a greater or lesser extent. But then it did get also, it. I'm just thinking it did get quite a few nominations because Mary J. Blige got nominated twice. That's true, yes. And yes, uh, so screenplay and cinematography. So it didn't do terrible. Um, and but I mean, Netflix's it, other offering was bright, so... <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, also something like like the Meyerowitz stories. I think people thought that was going to be a contender, but I guess you know the Dustin Hoffman's uh, sexual harassment stuff probably sunk its chances. Also, it's like not in in a year in which the Academy, I think, is trying to make itself look to be more 
socially aware than it has been and aware of the, you know, the whiteness of its nominees in past years. Um, something like the Meyerowitz stories, which is, you know, has a very kind of narrow focus on kind of middle class or, or upper middle class kind of people in New York. They may have thought, mm, maybe not the thing for us to be recognising. Mm. Oh, here's a question. You know, since Oscar So White yeah, and the kind of near immediate attempt to remedy it by essentially dishing out a whole bunch of uh, memberships to the Academy and uh, changing the rules that you couldn't just linger in the Academy forever. Do you think it's made a difference with the diversity of nominations? I don't think it has made... I mean, it has had a little bit of an effect, but in that I think movies like... You get something like Moonlight last year was like a, a huge deal. I think that that film, I think, did really well because it was great. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it benefited from being a movie really suited for its moment. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look at this, you have, like I said, Yancey Ford uh, is, is a black filmmaker. Uh, Denzel Washington uh, is obviously kind of an institution. But, uh, you know, the fact that he's uh, being joined by someone like Daniel Kaluuya, um, Jordan Peele, people like that, you know, there are there are definitely people of colour being given more opportunities, I think. But it's, it's not exactly, you know, it's not exactly kicking the door down and suddenly, you know, the the nominees are not overwhelmingly white. They still are overwhelmingly mm. white. But then um, we, we, are, we are stuck with the situation where the employment is overwhelmingly white. And, it, like, it, yeah. this kind of thing... And the thing is, the Oscars are meaningless. We talk about this every year. But, like, to see people represented that you can identify with can only do, you know, positive things and inspiring people to do things, you know? Like, seeing a female cinematographer nominated for Mm. Best Cinematography is only going to inspire young girls and women to pick up a camera. You know, Mm. it it must do. I can't... I could not name. And I, you know... Uh, I I kind of think I know a little bit about films. I cannot name a female DP, mm. which is appalling. No. Uh, well, I could, I could tell you that the director of cinematography for Creed was a woman, but I couldn't tell you her name. Which is which appalling. Is, yes. Whereas I could tell you like a bunch of male DPs, which is, uh, yeah, it's, it is appalling. But I think all of the attempts to kind of diversify the voting pool, it's all kind of a... A tail wagging the dog kind of thing where the the Oscars have said or the Academy have said like we want to try and be a symbol for change by you know kind of trying to reverse engineer it by saying okay if we make the Academy more diverse and they recognize more diverse work maybe that will force the studios to hire more diverse people and like there's mixed data on whether or not that's working like the pool of women directors hasn't grown noticeably over the last couple of years uh or like the racial makeup and the diversity of it hasn't changed hugely but you know it's a it's a big thing to change the way that the industry has been set up for a hundred years it's something that's going to take a long time and you know it's going to require women to be in more women to be in places of power more people of colour to be in, in places of power before for those dynamics to change. And, like, the efforts the Academy have made are 
well-meaning and will probably have some effect, even if just symbolic. But we could, it still feels like something that is not going to change instantaneously. And, and honestly, the biggest change may just be that uh, different kinds of movies end up getting nominated for Oscars. They may not necessarily be more diverse movies, but you may get something like, you know, like Lady Bird, getting all that attention, a movie directed by a woman about a very small, intimate story, which wouldn't necessarily usually be in the discussion, but owing to the fact that it's really, really good and because the body, the makeup of the Academy is a little more diverse than it has been. There is definitely that sense that they're looking out for different kinds of stories to highlight. Mm, yeah. And one other thing that happened in the lead up to this Oscars is whoever wins the best actress Oscar isn't going to have to accept it off uh, Casey Affleck because yes. he has backed out for no reason that I can think of. <laughs> Um, and I think the reason, as someone I think pointed out on Twitter earlier this week, that he didn't really want to be kicked in the balls very hard by Francis McDormand. Yes, yeah, which certainly seems like it would have been the most likely outcome because she is uh, the presumptive uh, winner at this point for three billboards outside of Missouri. Yeah, let's talk about three billboards for a moment. Mm, sure. Uh, I don't like that movie very much. Um, <laughs> And this isn't part, I'm not part of the backlash against it. I didn't like it when I first saw it. Uh, and then, but but I think you and I have both had the same experience where we had read some of the criticism of it on in terms of its depiction of race. Mm -hmm. And that certainly affected my viewing of it for the first time. But like most of my problems with it are not necessarily to do with the fact that, you know, it's a story, you know, it's, it is for me the cinematic equivalent of all those New York Times stories about, you know, we went to a diner in Iowa and talked to a bunch of Trump voters, you know, where you essentially are valuing the opinions and feelings of the oppressors over the oppressed. Mm -hmm. um, that That is one of the main problems with it, you know, that you have a story that values very much the inner life of a racist but goofy cop. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then the only black characters in the movie are you know, have no inner life and are treated essentially as just plot devices, which uh, is a bad look in 20, 2017 to begin with. But my main problem is that it's just so, like, so kind of obviously written. And it has this weird thing where it both tells you exactly what it thinks about everything and yet is completely incoherent. And that is quite an achievement in yeah. the wrong way. Yeah, well, what I'll say is, when you say it's, uh, um, I mean, what you went to say is it's terribly written, yeah. which is surprising because In Bruges is great. Yes. And, oh, I wanted to say Calvary was great, but that was his brother. So, yeah. Wrong Madonna. But, One um, of the Madonnas is very good at his job. <laughs> yeah. It's very clumsy. And mm -hmm. you, like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of problems with that movie. I mean, the whole, like, for me, the the backlash in return in regards to the racial politics is something that I you notice when you watch it, mm -hmm. but in terms of the backlash against it, it's not something that I would have thought about too much without having read a lot of the think pieces online about it, yeah. um, which is great because we live in an era where, uh, as myself as a white viewer, can pick up another perspective, which is great, and like completely have my opinion informed, or you know, I can I can I can take this on board. And that's the world we live in. I can I can do that, and it's great. I did find it very clumsy the way it handled race in the film. 
Um, and you know the, the the biggest problem, which is if you view Sam Rockwell's character's arc as redemptive, then there's a pretty big problem there because he is essentially redeemed by doing nothing uh, <laughs> to right the wrongs that he has done in his life um, mm-hmm. and trying to help someone else to redeem himself. Um, all of which he gets wrong and does it by accident. Yeah, um, and we're expected to go with him because he's kind of a goofball. But the the biggest problem with the writing is that literally every bit of emotional connection the characters have is done in two ways. One, a letter that someone reads out loud, which is not a good way of uh, getting that information across. Or two, a conversation with a digital deer. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's very, very clunky. It's very, very clumsy. It's, like you say, the black characters only serve the plot function. Like, Frances McDormand only has a black character as her best friend because... So we can set her apart from the other racist characters in town. Mm. Um, a, a best friend who is taken into custody by police. Yeah. And, and she's furious for, about it for five minutes. Yeah. But her friend is also taken into custody and is apparently in police custody for about a week. Yep. And then shows up just kind of getting out of a cab and is just kind of like, hey, I'm back. Yep. <laughs> and and she's like, like, when did you get out? And she's like, oh, just earlier. And it was actually no convenience to me whatsoever. Mm. in this town that we've already established is run by an incredibly racist police uh, force which has a grudge against your friend and would probably use that against you in some way. But yeah, it it doesn't really kind of adhere to any kind of interior logic. Yeah, and it's... I walked out of it and I went to see it with my friend Andy and we were both big fans of Like in Bruges and and we were actually quite looking forward to this film. Despite mm-hmm. the kind of the, the negative reactions, because there's been a lot of positive reactions that people are still very positive about it, um, yeah. and we both walked out of that and went, "Yeah, no, that was that was not good." Yeah, it, it's certainly it's very interesting seeing what movies end up becoming divisive, mm-hmm. um, because when that was doing the cir- the festival circuit, like there were a few people who seemed lukewarm on it, but there weren't that many kind of. Uh, extremely negative takes of it and it it does seem to be a case that like the insularity of film festivals you know allows it uh, films like that to kind of get a pass where people are like or or people were more interested in it as a story about righteous female anger uh, than anything else and thinking oh you know this feels like it really fits the political moment and then once it hits kind of a broader audience of, of critics and of viewers then people were like, yeah, I mean, that's a part of it, but you have to ignore the fact that Francis McDormand stops being the lead of the movie halfway through. Mm. And then it becomes about this other character who is uh, certainly not an embodiment of female anger. Mm. Yeah. And it's the, the defense of it. And like, there's some pretty well-written defenses out there that like, if your problem is that the Sam Rockwell character's arc is redemptive, then you're kind of wrong because his arc is actually one of damnation, and the character mm-hmm. is is. Uh, but then, if you if you if you believe that, and you honestly believe that from the text, like it's done so badly <laughs> that yeah. that's the case, you're like, oh, well, in that case, sure, his arc is one of damnation. But all right, in that case, the film's not very good. Mm, yeah, it doesn't sell that idea. It doesn't fit into the kind of gothic grotesque uh, tradition particularly well, mm. uh, the tradition that it kind of uh, 
lampshades by having Caleb Landry Jones reading a Flannery O'Connor book at the start. You know, like a lot of the defences of it don't, they, they all seem to hinge upon the argument of like, oh, well, you just didn't understand it, which mm. is not the best way to persuade people. <laughs> um, but also it's like, it, it, they are more of the, the sense of like, oh, but if you happen to view it through this one very specific lens, then it's actually great, which is like, well, that's not really mm. the best argument for a film being good. Yeah. And, and, to, and to argue against the principal problem of Sam Rockwell's character and his arc being one of redemption is to ignore the fact that we meet a character who is terrible. Mm-hmm. He has an emotionally term- ter- like traumatic moment when Woody Harrelson's character, spoiler alert, dies, mm-hmm. um, loses his job, loses everything, and at the end finds some purpose in life. I'm pretty sure that is by very definition redemption. Yeah, even like you can you can argue about the the particular ways in which the plot gets him there, but he is definitely a guy at the beginning of the movie. He's not a guy trying to be good. He's just a guy who enjoys abusing his power, mm-hmm. and by the end, he's trying to achieve some sort of weird, twisted version of justice. Yeah, and that definitely reads like redemption to me in the broadest possible strokes. Yeah, and like the bit at the end when like they're driving off to um, kill someone, they think it could be a murderer of someone. <laughs> um, I was like, could maybe have done something. Yeah, and this is the weird thing. This is the thing. I, like maybe you could explain it to me. But like the guy that Sam Rockwell thinks is the murderer by overhearing mm-hmm. him saying that he murdered and raped the you know Francis McDormand's daughter. That yeah. character previously turned up at Francis McDormand's workplace yes. and behaved in a very sketchy manner, which insinuated mm-hmm. that he knows her and he's got some kind of grudge against her. Yes. And then turned up, so you're like, oh, okay, it's perfect. It makes perfect sense. That's the guy. And then they're like, oh, yeah, the DNA evidence brings nothing up. And you're like, so, so what was he doing in the shop? Just, like, is, a, just a, a random asshole, Just admiring the work of a fellow rapist, I guess. Yeah. It's just uh, such a weird. What is happening like in this film? It, 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 like the more that I said to someone um, on Twitter the other day, they they walked out of the film immediately and were like, "Oh, good God, that was terrible." Mm. And I said, "Like every time I think or talk about it, it gets worse," mm. which is the the actual opposite of what you want from a film. You want to yeah. see a film and have it kind of like, oh, okay, cool. And then like, as you think about it and discuss it more, it gets better and better and better. So you have to watch it again. This just gets like, even talking about it now, I'm, I'm thinking even less of it. I'm deconstructing it to the point where I'm like, that was actually a poor movie. Not just mm. one that disappointed me. Like it is bad. Yeah. You're unraveling the different layers of its badness. Hmm. Like a like a rotten onion, yeah. <laughs> just kind of like slowly peeling away. It's like, oh yeah, no, that bit doesn't particularly make sense. I don't know why Abby Cornish is in this, and hmm. the way it treats the the way in which it uses Peter Dinklage's comic relief is uh, really really <laughs> very offensive, but uh, and which in turn makes me like think back on like the way in which McDonough used you know, a dwarf character in, in Bruges. It's like, why does that not bother me? And is it just the fact that in 2008 I was more horrible of a person? <laughs> or is it more just like their 
like he's like that guy is actually given more of a character than Peter than Peter Dinklage's. Like Peter Dinklage's character in this is really just kind of a lovelorn sap who everyone shits on for the entire movie. Mm. Whereas yeah, that guy, there's a really great scene in the, in the middle of the film, but you're like, what's this of service to? It's just of service mm. to the plot now, and it's just it just feels hollow and empty. Yeah, the whole thing uh, is completely unearned. Like everything in it is unearned, and that you. you once you've got to that point and you realise that everything you've seen has been at the service of characters who haven't earned anything, you realise it's a colossal waste of time. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously it's going to win Best Picture. Yeah, it'll win Best Picture. <laughs> to be fair, I will, I, will, I, will, I will come down on this side of the fence a bit. It is very well acted. Both Sam Rockwell yes. and Francis McDormand are wonderful in it, but they are playing scenes that make literally no sense. Mm. Um, and which and is, Woody Harrelson does his kind of laconic, laid-back lawman thing pretty well. But mm-hmm. it's not like... doesn't even have, like, the complexity that he brought to, like, the character he played in War of the Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. You know, it, he is really just there to serve as a bridge between the two halves of the movie. And also, I mean, it's hard not to see a movie in which, spoilers, someone reveals that they have cancer suddenly and not think of the room. But... That is that was kind of my first thought when he reveals that fact to Francis McDormand's character. It's mm. like, okay, I have to take this on board now. Yeah, there's also um, like I, I, this is getting worse now. Just just in this one conversation, there's <laughs> uh, you know th- there's a fairly heavy-handed point that the movie makes that violence begets violence, right? Mm. And actually has a character say that pretty much Ooh, to the yeah. camera, which is. And then they try and make a shit joke about it because the character in that is like the dumbest. She's dumb as a bag of hair. Like she is seriously dumb. But I would genuinely watch a film entirely from her point of view where <laughs> she just stumbles in on these weird situations and she has no idea what's happening. Yeah. No context for these dynamics, but it's just yeah. kind of like, I'm just going to kind of like throw out morals. Yeah. 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 It, I, oh, God, that, it's making me angry now in this film. <laughs> uh, any other kind of, elements of the Oscars for, for this year that kind of really leapt out at you? Any kind of nominations that surprised you or delighted you? I, for one, am very happy that Johnny Greenwood finally got an Oscar nomination for his score for Phantom Fred, mainly because it's a great score, um, really Baroque, but mm-hmm. also because, like, I feel like this should have been his fourth nomination because every score he does is so good. Yeah. Uh, and, and he was denied an Oscar nomination for There Will Be Blood for incredibly spur- spurious reasons ten years ago. So it's nice that he finally gets one. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen the film, haven't heard the score, but just thought of the the, fu- the, the pun, uh, if it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. Which is it's pretty decent. But I'm super, super excited to see Roger Deakins finally win <laughs> for um, Blade Runner 2049, which is, of all the films nominated that I have seen, um, that has got to be his best shot at doing it, because that film is just visually, like, insane. Hmm. And yeah. If, they don't, like, if, they don't, if he doesn't win it, like, he's probably just going to give up. <laughs> what's, the, what's the point? If you can't get the validation of an Oscar, then you know what's the point? Because it's clearly the most important thing. Yeah, and like, what is this? His tw- like twelfth nomination or something? He's he's racked up a fair few. Yeah, not uh, as many as John Williams though, because uh, I think he has got like fifty six nominations or something. Mm-hmm. Like in his yeah. lifetime, that's crazy. 
Yep, he's he's doing very very well for himself in nominations. And at this point, they are just kind of like, oh, he put out, he made a score this year. Let's just kind of like throw it out. But his his score for the Last Jedi is pretty great. Mm. Uh, but uh, I was also very pleased to see, uh, in terms of people racking up insane uh, totals, uh, the Post is the tenth movie that Steven Spielberg has directed to a Best Picture nomination nomination over his career. Fucking hell. Which is, is mad. That is pretty crazy. Yeah, his um, first one was Jaws, so he's, he's, done, he's done well for himself. Yeah, that ain't bad, is it? Um, I'm really pleased to see um, Kamala and Emily get the nomination for the big... I, just, I didn't say the second names, because to make <laughs> it sound like I know them. But, um, yeah, I'm so pleased to see them nominated for that. Um, and they're up against three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. If that wins... I'm just going to be very sad. Mm, I, I I saw a statistic earlier today, which I thought was fascinating. This is the most uh, married couples nominated for awards in a single year at the Oscars. Oh, really? Because you've got them, you've got Christopher Nolan and uh, Emma Thomas. Emma Thomas, uh, yeah. Who is his, his, his wife, his producing partner for Dunkirk. Um I think two of the producers on Can We Buy a Name are married as well. There's like seven or eight pairs of uh, people. Joanne Seller and Daniel Lupi are married, who okay. they produced uh, Phantom Thread. That's it. Yeah, I knew there yeah. was another one where it was producers. Um, but yeah, like there's, they're just like a bunch of them. They're all nominated, and I thought that was really that was really strange uh, because it's not something that I really think of often that you have those kind of creative partnerships in Hollywood. But uh, <laughs> like ten of them <laughs> are nominated this year. Mm. Uh, which I thought was quite, uh, was quite funny. I suppose it was very interesting to see Logan nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, mm. um, and then also really spuriously reported as the first comic book movie to ever be nominated for a, for a Best Screenplay Oscar, completely ignoring... I don't know who... It was like in some big... Produ- it wasn't like Variety or something like that who put that out. It, but was, like, it was like comicbookmovie.com. It was literally a, yeah. a website dedicated to comic books. Yeah, ignoring uh, Ghost World and History of a History Violence. Of, History of Violence and also American Splendor. So Ah, okay, yeah, all right. We, so there's three right there. Yeah, so you can you can make it the claim that it's the first superhero movie to be nominated for a writing Oscar, which I think probably passes muster. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there was also, there was like, the argument seemed to be like, oh, this finally brings legitimacy to the superhero genre. It's like, The Dark Knight was nominated for like eight Oscars. Like, mm-hmm. it's not like the genre has ever been uh, completely ignored. And, you know, it's it's that one best supporting actor, you know. So it's, it's it was really weird that they wanted to lock onto that as some kind of like uh, point of legitimacy for the whole the whole genre. But I guess it was it was certainly a surprise that it got nominated for that particular for that particular movie because although it was, it's a really good movie, I really like Logan. Uh, it wasn't a movie that I saw cropping up in the conversation uh, over the last couple of months. Mm, um, I always like the best song category. Mm, um, yeah. I've got my fingers crossed for "Remember Me" from Coco. I love that. I always think it's funny when you just look at that category and there's always a song for a movie no one remembers. <laughs> But they had an original song, and this one being Marshall, the uh, Thurgood Marshall biopic, which no one saw, but Common did do a song for. No, that's fair. Uh, good to see Alice and Janney getting a Best uh, Sporting Actress nomination. Mm-hmm. Laurie uh, Metcalf as well. She's come a long yep. way from since being Roseanne's sister. Yep. Uh, I think 
Alison Janney is probably going to win it, uh, which I don't have any problems with. I didn't particularly like I, Tonya. Uh, I think it's got some amazing performances, but it's not... It's kind of plays like Diet David O. Russell to me. Mm-hmm. But... Um, she is great in it. She is one of my all-time favourite actresses and uh, her getting an Oscar nomination feels long overdue. Um, also good to see Leslie, in terms of like Phantom Fred doing better than I expected, Leslie Manville getting a sporting Oscar, Oscar <clears throat> a sporting actress nomination is really cool. Um, in terms of like, I think people, some particularly conservative writers seem to be really complaining about the nominations, like saying that it's, like, uh, all part of some kind of, like, you know, left-wing conspiracy to push some sort of um, agenda or whatever. Mm-hmm. The, but, uh, which I find weird, because it doesn't... None of those nominations really strike me as, like, really pushing some sort of social agenda. The only thing that comes close uh, is nominating an old white guy for an award because of uh, Christopher Plummer for All the Money in the World. Mm, because yeah, that's so, a role yeah. that only exists because of the... Uh, me too movement yeah and again he didn't know he was in the film a few months ago <laughs> and he could very well be picking up an oscar for it uh yeah so like that's uh you know it's a good week's worth two weeks work for uh for christopher Plummer. Mm, yeah yeah he really did well out of that we thought that mark Wahlberg walking away with that cash was the uh you know he was the big winner but Plummer, fuck you know i mean they, i think i'm starting to think that people out there really hate kevin spacey you know what I mean? Mm. So, like, you know, Michelle Williams is offering to do the film for nothing. No matter, irrespective, sight unseen of his performance, they'll nominate him for an Oscar. <laughs> just, just to be like, yeah, yeah, we hate you, Spacey. Yeah. Certainly, yeah, that certainly seems to be the case. But that, that, that is one where I haven't seen the performance. I almost went to go and see All the Money in the World today, but instead I went and had a coffee <laughs> and bought a book. <laughs> like, those are my, my two options. I thought, oh, I'm really not in the mood for like a two-hour, twenty-minute movie at this point. It's just but, so it, like uh, you say, the darkest, uh, darkest hour is you know the the nearest we've got to Oscar bait this year. Hmm. All the money in the world is something that I would see. Like I'm so uninterested in seeing that. Yeah, but you know that that him getting nominated for that role is really feels like them saying you know we have paid attention to. Um, you know, the, the social movements that have kind of been roiling the industry for the last couple of months and we're recognising it. And also, like, the fact that that performance was kind of thrown together two weeks before the movie came out or whatever obviously gets it a certain amount of attention. So mm. even if the movie's probably not that good by most accounts, uh, he his performance would always be given kind of uh, outsized importance because of the way that it came about. Although I think... Uh, it was Nick Pinkerton who made fun of the kind of uh, excitement of people uh, talking about that performance being like, by by tweeting like, oh, Ridley's a madman. He threw together five scenes shot in a dimly lit room in two weeks. What a genius. <laughs> <laughs> um, which by, by all accounts is what most of the movie uh, consists of from, from his role. But um, yeah, it is, it is, uh, yeah, that's never not going to be funny to me <laughs> that Christopher Plummer did not, you know, he like you say, he wasn't in the movie. <laughs> then suddenly he is, and he's getting an Oscar nomination. And unlike uh, Mark Wahlberg's one point five million, he can't, he can never give that uh, that nomination back. Mm. He gets. Yeah. To have so that. Has anyone ever been stripped of an Oscar? I don't know if anyone's ever had their their Oscar taken away after winning, but there was that guy who got his nomination stripped 
like three or four years ago where it was a guy who was nominated for best original song. Oh, for that Christian movie that like no, no one, was yeah. no again it's the 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 best original song uh, that no one's heard of from the one movie and it was they, they broke the voting rules didn't they or something? Yes, he was like. The guy who wrote it was, like, the head of the Musicians Guild or whatever, you know, whichever voting body, and he had essentially emailed people and said, hey, you know, I've got this song nominated, why don't you have a listen, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, like, openly campaigned for it. And as soon as that came out, it got, it got stripped from him. But, uh, yeah, that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head. I'm sure there must be examples of other ones being re- uh, uh, decided to be kind of illegitimate. But mm. that's the only one where that was so high profile where they were like, no, fuck off. You're not getting a nomination for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, I'm just thinking of uh, uh, Sally Hawkins, Best Actress. Uh, hey, yeah. Following on from our profile of her last week, I think we gave her that, that extra push. It would push over the edge, yeah. Uh, great in that. Great in Paddington 2, which I finally saw. Hey, that's a great movie. Where's the, where's the love for that in the Oscars? It's not eligible. Came out in January over here, so oh fuck yeah. So we have to make it this year's Get Out and just make sure that the drumbeat <laughs> is consistent. Certainly, Twitter is treating it that way. Uh, everyone is tweeting about Paddington Two at the moment, and uh, I, for one, am very much in favour of it. That's a lovely movie. Um, the Boss Baby is <laughs> now an Oscar, Oscar-nominated movie. Yeah, and like a lot of people said, you know, that would make you think that it was a bad year for animation, and it wasn't like especially strong, but there were certainly better movies out there that they could have chose. Although people in the know about like the animated releases this year said that Boss Baby, at least, is bonkers. Mm. Whereas Ferdinand, which also got nominated, is legitimately a terrible movie. Yeah, I've seen two... The last two um, films I've seen at the cinema have both been kids' films, and the trailer's before kids' films, uh, you know, that is, the, you know, the last refuge of the damned. Um, mm. And some of the shit that I've seen advertised in the last couple of weeks. Peter um, Rabbit. Yeah, I mean, the Peter Rabbit trailer is, I mean, that's something else. But there's one called Duck Duck Goose. <laughs> okay. Where um, Jim Gaffigan voices a goose mm. that for some reason flies off course when they're migrating and ends up kind of imprinting onto ducks who have been separated from their, uh, I don't know, what do you call a lot of ducks? A gang? Yeah. Um, a bunch of ducks. Um, and you, you, I like the thing is with kids' films is like, you get the Disney movies and the Pixar movies where they care about making it so kind of affecting to kids that they will remember that film for the rest of their lives. Mm. And they will, in the future buy it on DVD, on Blu-ray, and, you know, on a streaming service, no doubt. They will, they will, those films are built to last. Whereas a lot of animated movies are banged out pretty quickly, very forgettable, feature references to things that are only, like, kind of current in the now, that will date the movie terribly in mm-hmm. five years, and they're instantly forgotten about. And we seem to be getting a lot of those recently. Yeah, it's uh, it's a dark time, and yeah. cinema reflects that, and I think it's reflecting that in its kids' movies. <laughs> um, I've, I've seen the the Peter Rabbit trailer, I think, four or five times at this point. That's and too every, many, man. Every time, it just makes me feel so, so morose. Yeah. <laughs> because I remember, like, 
watching like the old like cartoons of the the Peter Rabbit stories, the, all the Beatrix Boss stuff when I was a kid and reading all the books. And they're these books of such kind of warm, whimsical, pastoral charms. And then you watch that trailer and it's Peter Rabbit voiced by James Corden. That's the worst thing as well as like over here. I don't know if this is at every cinema, but it's certainly at AMC. Um, they have like a brief 10 second clip of Peter Ra- of, uh, of James Corden saying like, Hi guys, I'm going to show you a clip from my new movie, Peter Rabbit. And then he's like, oh no, everything about this has been compounded by how awful it is because I have to listen to James Corden's voice twice over. And, yeah. But then like, the, the, it's just so, it looks like what my worst fears of what Paddington was going to be, but times mm. 8,000, <laughs> like such a complete, completely missing the point of what those, what made those books so special. Um, it is very funny seeing like, uh, seeing Donald Gleeson in it, though. <laughs> yeah, um, seen him in such good movies recently. Yeah, and the guy I noticed as well when I watched it, uh, my eyes opened just as the uh, the trailer ended. But it's directed by Will Gluck. Who, I don't know if you mm-hmm. remember, he directed Easy A. Do you remember Easy A? That movie with Emma oh, yeah. Stone. That was like a really fun movie. Yeah, and then like since then, I think he did the Annie remake. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and now this it's just like oh god who did he piss off <laughs> but yeah and yeah just Peter Rabbit just, it's, it's intolerable I went to the cinema to see Coco last week and got Peter Rabbit and then I went the next day to see The Post and then I got the trailer for Ocean's 8 with also with James Corden in it and I was like it's too much Corden it's too much Corden I thought you were going to say that Peter Rabbit was also before the post, and I thought, they're really kind of throwing their net to the widest possible audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm trying to catch everyone uh, with that. But yeah, I'm, you know, I have so little desire to, to sit through that. But yeah, how do we get onto that? Oh, kids' films being terrible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I think Boss Baby, yeah. yeah. That's where it came uh, from. Yeah, so that, that's enough about future Oscar nominee Peter <laughs> Rabbit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so before we kind of wrap things up, what are your kind of final thoughts on this slate of nominees? Uh, for me, I think it's it's a pretty good like list of movies. Like there are obviously movies on there uh, that I would that we just talked about one of them for twenty minutes, but there are movies on there that I would have said mm, no. You could probably take away some of these nominations and give them to you know the Florida Project or whatever. But for the most part, I think it was a it's a pretty good selection of movies and one of the better selections of, of movies for, for the Oscars uh, that I can remember in, in recent times. Mm, there are options there. Yes. Is, uh, you know, like, normally it's just five stale films with five stale performances in it and, you know, maybe the occasional curveball in one of the lesser car- categories, but in every category there seems to be something interesting there that won't win. Yeah, there's lots to be mad about. Because usually, <laughs> there's there's usually when you know you have a movie which you think, okay, if this loses in all of these major categories like the Social Network in 2010, where you're like, oh man, if this loses, it's going to be so bad. Whereas this year, it's like, oh man, if Get Out and Lady Bird lose everything, I'll be really upset. Or Phantom mm. Fred, and and oh, it, invariably they'll all end up having to beat each other. But it'd be kind of nice if it's another year where they kind of spread the love, and at the end of the night. Oh, like Paul Thomas Anderson won Best Director and Jordan Peele won Best Original Screenplay or whatever. It'd be nice if it's kind of split out between a few people. Yeah, because what 
a lot of people don't realise is that like the nominations are just the first round of votes. Yes. People can vote now for ages. So, you know, I'm up for some electioneering. I'm kind of hanging around outside people's houses, screaming, get out, which yeah. would be confusing for many reasons. Do you think that this year's round of kind of like uh, Academy luncheons is going to be especially awkward if uh, divorced couple Leslie Manville and Gary Oldman both show up? Well, considering there are so many happily married couples that have been nominated this year, yeah, it'd be <laughs> yeah. very, very, very difficult. Um, yeah. But yeah, I always wanted to go to that Academy luncheon. I always wondered, like, you know, what goes on there other than a lot of backslapping. What, what I would like to see is, and this, this would never happen because no one would agree to it, but if you could get, like, one of those, just, like, everyone mic'd up and cameras on everyone and assemble a documentary out of it, just mm. to kind of, like, track like you say, the electioneering, like who's sat where, who's looking at whom and trying to kind of gauge who they need to be talking to just as like a sociological experiment to kind of look at the, you know, the, the conflicts underneath the surface of, uh, of Hollywood and kind of offer this panoramic view of what an absolute mad dash it is to try and get enough support to eventually walk away with the trophy on Oscar night. Mm. Or like there, and in contrast to that, the people who just aren't interested. Mm-hmm. Like uh, there was a really good thing last year where I think Lin Manuel Miranda, who was nominated for Moana, had kind of put up something that like he spent the entire thing, the entire what luncheon, talking to Viggo Mortensen, who mm-hmm. uh, when Lin Manuel Miranda's mother, who was his date to the uh, to the luncheon. Um, realised that um, Viggo Mortensen could speak fluent Spanish. Um, the three of them just like hang out talking to Lin-Manuel mum for the entire occasion in Spanish. And I just thought, that's such a lovely little thing about people who probably don't care about winning the award, mm. as I imagine Viggo Mortensen probably doesn't. No, he's pre- he certainly seemed in that position of being like, oh, I didn't expect to be nominated, so I'll just kind of hang out. And he's just getting ha- he's trying to get Hamilton tickets, that's what he was trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Aragorn can't get it. Maybe, you know, Boromir could have got it with some connections, but Aragorn, he's just a strider. No one cares about yeah. him. Yeah, no, no. He's got Absolutely. no win. So we end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we have enjoyed and which we think that you, the listeners, will also enjoy. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Uh, I'm going to recommend a TV show, um, a, a net series, actually, because um, it originally started on the, uh, the internet and then moved to Netflix. It's a, um, a little show called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, presented by Jerry Seinfeld. It is a chat show um, where they strip away all the pretense of a chat show, and Jerry Seinfeld picks up a famous friend of his in a uh, classic vintage motor uh, and then drives him for a cup of coffee. It's very simple. Um, and for most of its um, episodes, is successful. Um, he gets some kind of uh, very candid, um, quite relaxed conversations out of some very interesting people, like Julia Louis-Dreyfus, um, uh, Michael Richards. Also, there are people outside of the Seinfeld cast that are interesting, um, such as uh, Larry David. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. The guy um, who played uh, Banya. Yeah, um, Newman. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, um, he speaks to, like, people like Judd Apatow and uh, Kevin Hart. That's a good one, where he mm-hmm. speaks to Kevin Hart. Um, and they have a, a fun conversation about how to 
break it to their kids that yes they are rich people but their kids aren't allowed any of the money um, <laughs> which is kind of pretty funny um but then there's also some really awkward ones the one with howard stern he's like pretty awkward um the one with david letterman is a little stilted in places um but like on the whole it's generally quite good um and i would recommend seeing it's like for the strong episodes the ones with will ferrell is really good and the ones with uh like michael richards and and, and julie Drew, louis dreyfus are amazing it all have just been added to netflix but my my kind of like sub recommendation to that is is a tv show that did this exact same concept um about 10 years previous and it's actually also pretty good it's called carpool mm-hmm. and it is the guy from red dwarf who plays Crichton, robert llewellyn Yes. Would drive yeah. around England, picking up people like Patrick Stewart and uh, just driving them around uh, anywhere they wanted to go, having a very candid conversation with them. And that was actually a really good show. And uh, I recommend that one as well. You can find that on YouTube because um, that is uh, obviously he's not successful as Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> so, yeah, probably doesn't get the uh, the big Netflix deal, but a good show nonetheless. So that's what I'm going to recommend. Uh, those two things, but kind of rolled into one. Cool. I'm going to recommend a documentary called The Work, directed by <clears throat> Jairus McCleary and Gethin Aldos, uh, but billed as a McCleary Brothers production, which I found very funny because when the credits roll, there's about 37 people named McCleary listed <laughs> in the cast. It's very much the uh, McPoyle family of uh, gritty <laughs> prison documentaries, I guess. Um, but The Work is a documentary from last year about a group therapy program at Folsom Prison in California where these prisoners who are all, you know, very uh, people who have done some very terrible things. You have former gang members, you have killers, kidnappers, uh, people who have committed armed robbery, all sorts of terrible things are all put into a very small room together. They all form groups of eight or ten people and they kind of sit around and they have very frank and open conversations about their lives and their experiences. Sometimes this engenders kind of physical actions where, you know, you do the equivalent of a trust fall, except you are eight people sit on one person because they're violently thrashing around. And Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that they do as part of this program is twice a year, they let civilians in to take part in these uh, in these sessions as well. And the, the documentary follows kind of like these three guys who all come into this uh, wanting some sort of help with their kind of emotional problems. And the, the movie is just this like really intense, but deeply empathetic chronicle of what these guys go through and their, the, the conversations they have with people who are, who have done, you know, in some cases done very terrible things and feel great kind of guilt. Uh, and it's a wonderful movie about masculinity and about, um, the ways in which images of machismo in society can be kind of corrosive and corrupting and, and about these guys trying to come to terms with that. Uh, and it is, it's really deeply moving and at times also funny. There's one bit where the, one of the kind of civilian guys has this really big breakthrough, but his breakthrough in, involves him having to be tackled to the ground by seven of these kind of inmates. And afterwards they're all kind of sat around and he's got a small cut on his head and it's bleeding slightly. And one of them says to him, you know, when you go out there into the world and anyone asks you about that, you just say, I got it fighting a bunch of guys in Folsom and I'll, end any conversations and it's just it's just a really <laughs> funny moment because you've just watched this incredibly intense scene where this guy has just uh you know mid-conversation just started screaming <laughs> in this real kind of like 
uncomfortable primal scream therapy. Um, and it's just it's just a really wonderful movie. If I if I'd seen it earlier, it would have been on my top ten for last year with with no doubt. It's it's just a really really powerful and strange documentary. It is currently available uh, for rent on iTunes in the US. I'm not sure how widely available it is in the UK, but um, certainly keep your eye out for it if it you know shows up on Netflix at some point, as a lot of documentaries do, or or if it shows up on iTunes, it's really worth uh, worth the time of uh, checking out. Mm, that sounds good, man. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, all the usual places. Please leave us a review and rate us. That helps us get new listeners. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. 